as a basketball. And I've always been good, but not great. And as I've gotten older, my good has shrunk. And so now that I'm in my 40s, um, I, I used to be, you know, like, it's like fishing. The, the older you get, the bigger the fish were that you caught. And so in my mind, I was really good, and in reality, I wasn't. But now it's even trickling down to a greater damning effect of what I can actually accomplish. But a few years ago, because I get these charity, my friends that are good at basketball, they give me these charity games where they let me play even though I'm not good enough. Um, I had this opportunity to play in this basketball tournament presentation, and they needed one more team. And so it was presentation, Jamestown, Northern was there. Um, and then this school uh, from like outside, I think it was from Indiana or something like that. Uh, but my friend who played at Northern, who's just a very good basketball player, said, hey, do you want to play on this last team to make the numbers even for this summer league tournament? And of course, in my mind, I said, well, of course I'll play, and I'm glad you asked because you want to win. But, uh, but, but he, he brought me into the fold. They called them the Aberdeen All-Stars, and um, five years ago, I looked fundamentally the same, just kind of chubby and balding, and, uh, but in my mind, great. And I remember... When we started the tournament, we played, uh, we played Northern first, then we played Jamestown, then we played PC, and we made it to the championship, uh, which had nothing to do with me, but there was only seven of us, and so that meant I played a lot, and literally the highlight of my athletic career was we were playing Jamestown, and the coach, I, I hit a couple of threes, and it's because no one really thought they had to guard me, and, and I hit a couple of threes, and the coach literally dropped a really bad word on the court. And he said, is someone going to bleep and guard that guy? Are you serious right now? You just let him score on you. And I thought, I've arrived. If I go to be with Jesus right now, I've made it. <laughs> um, but, but the ref who I'm friends with, uh, Rosie, this big tall guy, he, he said to me, he said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you make it to the end of the day. <laughs> and I thought, okay. So we play Northern at the end, and it goes into overtime. And literally about a minute into overtime, I, this is so embarrassing, it's true. I don't think I've ever told in church, but I can't remember. Um, I was completely dehydrated. Like, if you've ever been really dehydrated, you can start to literally taste the deep-seated salt on your face. And uh, I was just an absolute wreck, and I'm kind of just barely getting down the court. And it goes somehow into overtime, and I actually missed the shot to win, uh, which is another story. And I, I went to the other end of the court. I fouled a guy. I cramped up and dropped, and I couldn't get up. And everyone's looking at me like, what in the world? And the ref, Rosie's just like, told you, right? <laughs> and and I, dro I dropped to the ground, and I, this is so embarrassing, but I had to like kind of crawl off the court, and it was like a slug when you slime on a snail where you just kind of drip and, and you move. And I had this realization that no matter how hard I tried, it did not matter, right? I shouldn't have even been on the court. No matter how hard I tried, my good, and I think I'm good, my good was in no way good enough. And that's the gospel. That's what Jesus is going to lay out for this guy who's seemingly good. He's going to lay out the law for him, the second half of the Ten Commandments. The guy's going to say to him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus is going to lay out an expectation. And then the guy's going to go, well, I've already done those things. And then Jesus is going to lay out a greater expectation because he's going to go after his heart. I'm giving away the whole sermon. I didn't plan on doing this at the beginning. And, and he's basically going to lay out from this case that I'm going to open with and close with that your good is not good enough. And when it comes to getting to heaven, your good is like filthy rags before the Lord. Your good 
is like my sluggish effort to get off the court. Your good is just simply not good enough because the Bible is going to say, and now I'm really giving away the message, Jesus is going to flat out say, only God is what? Good. You're following with me. Good. Good. You did a good job. This is an actual encounter. It's not a parable. Jesus is going to say, give up your money and follow me. He's going to lay out the cost of discipleship, and this guy is going to walk away because he loves the here and now more than the eternal. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. Not a lot of scripture. It's kind of a short story. We'll cross-reference it a bit, and then we'll move on and just hammer it out for what it means for us at this church. Verse 17 of chapter 10 of Mark says this. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is now starting to head towards Jerusalem to die and to rise again. Everything's getting very intense in his ministry. He's on year three. He's on the east side of the Jordan River in this place called Perea. And this very unusual situation happens. And we know it's unusual because in the book of Matthew, Matthew actually writes this, and behold, and when you say behold in the New Testament, it's like, pay attention, this isn't normal. And behold, this man came running up to Jesus. In Matthew and Luke's account, we learn that he was young, that he was a ruler, and if he was a ruler, he was probably a ruler of a synagogue. So he was very much religious. He wasn't a scribe or a Pharisee. He would have been some type of volunteer religious, but he was a ruler. He was a leader. He was like an elder or a deacon in the local church, if you were to translate that. He had power and he had authority because in Jewish culture, the church was absolutely everything. The synagogue was everything. And so he had a reputation, but his heart was still unsettled. He wanted more. Something inside of him was begging the question, what else is there? Because he knows in his heart of hearts, although he's followed all the rules like a good boy, there was still something missing. And so God's, in a sense, working on his heart. This guy would have respect. This guy would have money because we learned that he has money. And he would also have a title. And so for men in our pride, this is pretty much the stereotypical male, stereotypical male of everything you would ever want in life. And he comes running up to Jesus. Almost perfect, seemingly perfect. Here, here's what are some good things about him, and maybe you write stuff down. You can just take note of this guy. He came running. That was humble. Because in Middle Eastern culture 2,000 years ago, men didn't run. We've talked about this with, like, the prodigal son. Uh, for the father to run to the child after the child had humiliated him, they, they wore these robes. And so the reason why it's so unusual, it was humbling. You would, you would pick up your robe as a man in your sandals, and then you would literally have to high skirt it to run or you're going to trip over yourself. And so it was just a humbling process. This guy came running to Jesus. Here's what else is unique. He kneels down before the Savior, not having all of his questions answered, being a religious man and a religious ruler of himself, himself being known by the community uh, that, that is around him, being respected. He kneels before Jesus, and that's just a humble posture to take. And so as Jesus is responding to him, it says in Matthew 19, 20, the young man said to him, all these things I, I have kept. And so Jesus is going to lay out the expectation. In Matthew, it says, all these things I have kept. He says, what do I still lack? Right? There's this idea of, I know there must be more. 
And maybe that's how you came to Christ. It, your life was seemingly good, but you were still unsettled. Right? You, you were a hero in the Aberstein All-Star League, but you knew that there was still, that was a joke, there was still something more to your life. That good wasn't good enough. And so he had this thing going on in his life. He says, what am I still lacking? Mark 10, 18 says this. And Jesus said to him, here's where he gets theological. He says this. He says, why do you call me good? Because no one is good except God alone. Jesus is already breaking it down. He's saying, trust me, I already know in your heart you think you're good. Now, you called me good, so somehow we're on an equal playing field, but let me just give you the theology of good. There's God and good and then sinners, and so unless you're calling me God, don't call me good. And Jesus is God. He's the son of God. It's the, it's the perfect trinity, but he's saying, I know you don't know that yet. I know you don't get that yet, and so why are you saying these things? Are you just passively calling everyone good in your life that you don't really know? Because if you've studied the Old Testament, you know from Psalms 14, 53, 5, 140, 10, 36, later on after Christ resurrects, Paul writes Romans chapter 3 and lays out his case. No one's good except God alone. And so he's saying, why do you call me good? What must I do to be saved? Good teacher. And this is what Jesus says. He says, you know the commandments, right? You're a ruler in the synagogue. He lays out the last half of them. He says, don't murder. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Here's a big one. Honor your father and mother. And this is what the guy says. He said to him, teacher, all of these things I've kept since my youth. Thank you so much for the lecture on the last half of the Ten Commandments. But just remember, I called you good, but I'm pretty good too. And I'm just proud to tell you in this moment, teacher, verse 20, all of these things I've kept from my youth, or some translations say, since I was a little boy. And so here's what I would say, just working with people for the last 17 years and having a basic theology that God only is good and that the only way we can get to heaven is through the blood of Jesus covering our sins so that we can be made good in him. Here's what I know about this guy. If he said that to me as a pastor coming in my office, just working with people on a very practical level, all of those spider senses in the back of my neck are going to go off because I already know on a practical level, not just a theological level, that when you get behind the scenes of people's junk and you work with them in counseling, no one's good. There's only seemingly good, and sometimes seemingly good is the scariest type of false good because that's the religious good, and then you get behind the scenes and you get the pretense cut out of it, and you realize everyone literally is on the same level. Everyone is in absolute desperate need of a Savior and completely broken. And so this guy says, wow, you are good, teacher, and now you've just laid out this case of what it looks like for me to be good, and I am so happy to tell you that I have fundamentally passed the test, and man, if I was Jesus, I would just want to get my, I would just want to say bull. Now, Jesus takes his time, he breaks down his argument. This guy is absolutely living in delusion. Jesus goes a step further in his teaching throughout the course of his ministry, because he's dealing with religious person after religious person after religious person 
who thinks that they are good outside of God and nothing's changed, especially in good old Aberdeen where everyone's religious and everyone's good, Jesus breaks down the argument on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you think you're good? You think you followed the letter of the law? And just, just as a side note, you guys, there's 613 of these laws. I mean, they, they love the script for what it looks like to be quote unquote good. He says, you think you're good? You followed the letter of the law? One of the laws is, thou shall not murder. Thou shall not kill. But I tell you, if you're familiar with scripture, you already know where I'm going. If you have anger in your heart, you've already sinned. Like, who, who can then live up to that letter of the law, the moral law that supersedes just those things that are written? Jesus takes it a step further. He says, you think you're a good religious person? You've never cheated on your wife? He says, how about this? This is your heart condition. If a woman walks down the street and you check her out, you just cheated on your wife. Now, who's followed that law? And all of the religious person, people in the crowd have their hands up going, Jesus, I, I followed it, I followed it. And then they go like this. Not so much. They didn't follow that law. They didn't follow that rule. Only God and God alone is good. This guy's lying to himself. This is how I know he's lying to himself. If he actually thought he followed all that stuff, would he have ever come to Jesus and asked, what do I need to do to be saved? There's this thing going on, this wrestling in his heart where he knows that he's lied to everyone else, but he can't lie to himself when he goes to bed at night. He knows in his heart something's not right. And so Jesus takes it a step further. He wants to expose the idols in his heart. He knows that he's been worshiping stuff and not God. He knows that he's religious, but he doesn't have a relationship. And this is how Jesus exposes him. He says this in verse 21. And Jesus looking at him, here's what's so cool to start with. And Jesus looking at him loved him. In all of his sin and all of his dysfunction, it says Jesus loved him. He, he knew his heart. He knew all of those things that had separated him from a holy God and all of those pretenses that he walked in, and he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And check out verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus has this one request. It's just like the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, oh, you followed this? Well, what about your heart? Oh, you've never cheated on your spouse? Well, what about your heart? He's created an equal level playing field. There's God that's good and everyone else is a sinner. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter because the Bible tells us clearly in Deuteronomy, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, right? This is the setup to all of the law. And he says, I'm going to expose to you that you actually haven't followed the law at all because you haven't loved me. And if you want to prove that you love me, then lay your idols down at the altar and prove it. And the way that I know you won't do it is I'm going to lay out for you a higher ethic. Go give all of your stuff to the poor so that you can inherit eternal life. And so here's kind of the irony of that. You could be the most giving person in the world and outside of Christ you're still going to hell. But Jesus is getting at an ethic. He's saying, you don't truly love me. You love other things more than me. You love your identity more than me. You love your possessions more than me. You love your status in a religious community more than me. And I'm just going to take a moment here to break it down and show you that you're not who you think you are. 
And so the guy walks away with his tail between his legs as Jesus says, give me your idol. Give me your heart. This guy would have been somebody that everybody knew. Everybody knew who this guy was. And so when everyone's looking at them, now put it, put it in context. They had seen Jesus embrace people that were so much worse than this guy. And you remember the, the woman at the well? He's like, I know that you're not married. I'm just paraphrasing. I didn't even plan on going here, but it came to my mind. I know that you're not married, but, you know, you're not married to this person, but you've been married one time, two times, three times, four times, five times. I mean, everyone knew the woman at the well. She was going to the well at a certain point of the day where she thought no one else would be there because she was the town outcast. And Jesus says, like, turn to me. Your sins are forgiven to people like that. And then this guy, who seemingly has it all together, everyone respects. It's not just that he was wealthy. It's that he was young. And so he was able to accomplish things at a very early age because he was somebody. He was ahead of the game. He was a rising star in the Jewish community. And Jesus says, man, give everything you have to, to the poor and live a different life. Lay down your false idols at my feet, and then I know that you're the real deal. Then I know that I have your affection, and this guy, who everyone knows, who everyone's watching, walks away. Don't miss the reality of getting into the text and not just reading the text and realizing that this would have been absolutely shocking for a crowd that was religious. And, and so here's how I want to spend the next little bit of time with you. I just want to break this down for us. I want you to write these statements down <clears throat> because they've been on my heart all week and I feel like this is what God has for us as a church. Number one, if you're new to new life, you might hear this for the first time. If you've been for us, with us for any length of time, this is the type of conversation that we have here at this church. This is the problem that we have with religion. Religion says do, and Jesus says follow. This guy comes to Jesus and he says to him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus never even gets past the law. And he never even gets past this idea that, you know, it's either you're all in or you're all out. He doesn't even get to the cross and the resurrection when he talks about salvation. Because he first lays down an expectation of giving Jesus everything with his heart. And as he does that, he knows the guy is not going to do what he's supposed to do. Jesus says, follow me. He says earlier in Mark, he says, pick up your cross. Pick up this torture device. Show me that you're willing to give me all of your affections and every ounce of your heart and every ounce of your status and lay it down at my feet. And then we can talk about the details. But unless you're willing to do that, like, like in our evangelical culture, I don't want to step on toes, but I think we wouldn't quite lay it out like that. We'd say, well, just say this quick prayer. I mean, Jesus doesn't even go there. He just says, give me your heart. I want you to follow me and give me your affection. And you just want to do, do, do. Because your whole life has been entrenched in pride and religion. And I just want to show you that you're not who you think you are. This guy says, what must I do to be saved? I can just imagine his face light up when Jesus throws at him the last half of the Ten Commandments. And his face just kind of smiles and beams. And he goes, man, I thought I could fool everyone. And I guess I can, even though I know something's wrong with my heart. Even Jesus just laid out an ethic that I can relate to. Check, 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 check. I'm good. Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. 
And I'm going to prove it by just giving you something very seemingly small in the temporary. Give up your possessions like my disciples did and prove to me that you're loyal to following me no matter what. And the guy walks away. Religion says do. Jesus says follow. When he's not asking for our pocketbook primarily, he's asking for us to give up our identity in it for it to be found in him. And he just knows that there's a false idol there in that man's life where his pocketbook, and for most of us that's actually true anyways, right? His pocketbook is directly linked to his identity as a big deal. And so then the guy walks away. He has one more person to convince. And he doesn't probably believe it himself, but he's convinced everyone else. And he probably thinks to himself, this guy that's so popular, that's healing people, raising people from the dead, this guy that's a rabbi, some are saying he's the Messiah, if I can just convince him, then I can sleep at night and rest my head on a pillow. And Jesus just absolutely rips him. His call isn't for his pocketbook as much as it is for his identity. He's been wearing his money and his status. Look at me. He's been wearing his warm blankie of status for the last however many years based on his accomplishments, based on how everyone else sees him. And Jesus pulls the warm blankie off of him that's made him so comfortable and says, give me your heart or walk away. And the guy walks away. Here, here's the second thing that I want us to see. Again, if you've been at New Life, this is the conversation. Jesus Christ refuses to share your affection with anybody or anything. That's the call. That God is a jealous God. That God is the groom. That we're the bride. And it's just like a, a dysfunctional marriage situation where you know, who would go to their spouse and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I also love him and her and him. I mean, that would just never work, right? God is saying, your love and affection for me has to be exclusive where I am your absolute top priority. And Jesus is saying, I refuse to share it and I don't apologize for it. I am the son of God. God the Father has called me down to earth to die in your place, to rise from death, to conquer sin, to defeat it, to separate you uh, from your sin, in Christ, you have a new life in me. You get everything in the here and now, in a, in a spiritual sense, and in the eternal. But you have to lay your life down. I refuse to share your affections. Quit worshiping these false idols. And the reality is this, that these idols can take many shapes. It does not have to be money. In fact, a lot of times it, it isn't. What's your false idol? If you, if you were to examine your heart in this text and say, man, Jesus, put me in this storyline. I want to see my own life through the lens of this rich, young ruler. I know for him it's money, and for maybe, for, maybe if for part of our hearts, it, it's usually typically tends to be our pocketbook. But there are other things as well. Jesus, examine my own heart and tell me what I worship. And here, here's how I would define an idol. And maybe you want to write it down. It seems simple, but just so we're all on the same page. Anyone or anything that is most important thing in your life. It gets the majority of your thoughts. It gets the majority of your feelings. It gets the majority of your actions. It's that thing that brings you the deepest joy and the truest identity. And here, here's how you really know. This is what Jesus does. This is the test. You know it's an idol if it gets taken away and you kick and scream. If it gets 
just in any way rocked and you don't even know what to do. I told you that we're going to be using analogies through what I'm going through in life right now. And I think because we are rural South Dakota, we can all walk in this analogy. Friday night, I've been doing something every day that I did not realize would take so much time. I've been coaching girls basketball. And uh, I truly believe we're going to win a national championship. We're just that good. But uh, it's just our record doesn't show it. But um, I, I've been coaching B-level girls basketball. And in, and in the most prestigious of positions, it's JV. But our coach had to have a surgery Friday. And so uh, unbeknownst to me, before too long before it happened, I was going to coach this game. And so I, I did that. And um, just to be honest, I love basketball. There's a lot of things in coaching. I'm not an X's and O's guy. So I thought, well, here we go. I'm just going to yell at them for a long time and, and, and encourage them through yelling. And we're going to just try to get this win. And so we worked hard all week. There's people in church that were in the game. Uh, we worked hard all week. And uh, they were moving the ball. And I was proud of them. But I thought, man, I, I don't have like a ton of strategy, but I'm a motivator. And so we get into this game. And I give this pregame speech. I say, do you believe that you can win, right? Do you believe that you can win? And the idea is don't get your butt out of this locker room if you think you can't win. And it was like, Rudy, Rudy. I mean, that, that's my gift. And so they go out, and they're all fired up. And I say, you have an assignment. You have an assignment. This girl gets face guarded. And if anyone breaks down their assignment, man, I'm going to go nuts. And, and I did. I was just, like, going crazy. I had no idea how intense that could be. I'd Never done anything like it before, and probably, maybe never again, I don't know. But, uh, but I'm, I'm having this moment with the girls, and there's this one girl on our team that she's like the sweetest and most unassuming girl, uh, so nice, uh, just literally caring, loving the whole bit, going to just be a very successful person in life. A and then the basketball game starts, and she changes, and that's why I love her. She, her name's Grace. She's like the best kid ever. But, but her, her, the whites of her eyes get big, and her teeth show and it's like she turns into Teen Wolf, but a, a pretty female version. And, and she, she gets in this game, and she just goes nuts. I mean, she's just digging in, digging in, digging in. And uh, this team that we played usually does not lose. And, in fact, they still beat us. But it came really close. And, uh, and, and so we're digging in. We're, like, winning at halftime. And then there's this, there's this idle section. And if you've lived in a small community or Aberdeen, you, you know what I'm talking about when it comes... Is there anything of a bigger deal in a small community than the sports? And so, really, there's this idol worship on display. And it was called the parent section, but I think a better terminology would be the idol section. And in this idol section, they are yelling things at us that I would never say to anybody. I can hear them because it's like a battle dome, these little B schools. And, and it's like all of a sudden, here's what's so crazy about this. This is what idol worship actually looks like in real time, in real life. There was this lady, it was parent night. She was so, like, she looked like she was just going to bake you a warm pie and have you over for dinner. And then the game started, and Grace's teeth were showing, and she was foaming at the mouth, face guarding this girl. And people were saying, it's a foul, it's this, it's that. This little unassuming 110-pound lady with her Mary Kay bag and her buckle jeans because she lives in a small town, and that's what small town people wear. She gets up, and she's just literally going crazy. She's going crazy. That's a foul. You are it. I mean, I don't even want to say what she was saying. I was shocked. I'm an hour away from home. I'm like, warm up the bus. We got to get out of here quick. <laughs> this lady is losing her mind, and she's in good company in the idol section because her idol was rocked. Her affections were challenged. Someone poked the bear. 
And that's, that's the way it actually looks. Or maybe it's money. Maybe it's status. Maybe it's a title. But hear me say this. Look at me. It's always an identity. A false idol is always an identity that we walk in. And Christ knows the difference between caring about something and being consumed with it and putting that thing ahead of him. And it just constantly takes a different form. That thing that if you take it away, you can't function. Everyone put your phones down or it just looks hypocritical. That thing that if you take it away, it has all of your affections and you just get rattled and you can't function. That is the thing that God is saying through his son Jesus. That's the thing I want. For this guy, it was money, it was status, it was identity. He says, that's what I want. And the guy walks away. Jesus isn't going to go share our affection. I just want to close with the opening statement. Good in my life and good in your life and good in everyone's life except for Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior. Good is not good enough. Jesus knows the difference between following rules and loving him with all your heart. And where we get in trouble in our religious culture that's becoming less religious every day as people are just completely abandoning the faith, where we get in real trouble is when we hold to this position that somehow, and this is what we're taught through every ounce of religion we've ever swallowed, that somehow you can work your way through this religious ladder and system and check out off the ru- all the rules. And so since we don't know all the 613 Levitical laws anymore, for us, it just looks a little different. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I give the people in need. Check. I go to church at least two weeks out of the Sunday. You know, I put up with the pastor. Check. I do this. You know, I give. I cut that check. You know, check, literally check, right? I do all of these things, and God is looking at your heart if you've not been saved. And he's saying you're good is not good enough. That only I'm good. And if you want to know me and love me and serve me, if you want to be in right standing before a holy God who is loving, like this text talks about, Jesus loved this man. If you want to be in right standing between a holy and perfect God, then the only way to be made good, hear me say this, if you don't hear anything, just hear the gospel right now. The only way to be made good is to have Jesus be good in your place or you're cooked. I mean, you you could follow every rule that you've ever imagined, but you'll fall short of his glory because there are times where you don't add up because you are a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. And God says, you know, in my justice, in my wrath, in, in, in the holiness that I walk in, I cannot be in heaven with you. I cannot be connected to you as a sinner, but I love you so much, I'm sending my son Jesus in all of his perfection to go down to earth with all of the idol worship that existed 2,000 years ago and still going on today, with all of the dysfunctions, with all of the pride of the heart of man, I'm going to enter into this mess of humanity, my creation who has betrayed me and turned their back on me. I'm going to send my son Jesus Christ to die in your place because the wage of sin, the Bible says, is death, but the gift of God is eternal 
eternal life. I'm going to interject my son into the human story, and he is going to die in your place. And when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to his death. You're saying yes to his resurrection. You're saying your good is not good enough, and that there's nothing you can do to earn your way to God. That's the gospel. This guy walks away. He says, I'll give you trinkets. I'll give you some of my heart. I'll give you rules that I can try to follow. But don't ask. Don't ask for my identity. He was willing to trade in an eternity with God that he says he wanted so bad for a temporary identity crisis and stuff. And as we close out and pray together, I just, I just want to be transparent. We do, I do, the exact same thing. My good and your good is not good enough. If you think you can earn your way to the Father, you're going to get exactly what you earn and exactly what you deserve, which is separation from him for eternity. The gift of God is eternal life. Jesus' blood paying the price for your sin in your place and then he rises from death, and so you're dead to your sin and alive in Christ. You can have this hope and eternity with him based on nothing that you did on your own. You don't earn it. Your good's not good enough, but Jesus is a perfect good in your place. And Jesus' question to him is, will you follow me with your heart? Will you follow Jesus with your heart? Right now, if you're feeling, man, I, don't know, I didn't know it like that. I thought I was religious. I thought I was good. But as I stand before a holy God, I'm cooked. Then this is your day to surrender your life to Christ. To have salvation usher in. To say, Jesus, you're perfect. Jesus, you're holy. Jesus, your death changes everything. Your resurrection changes everything. Holy Spirit, come into my life. Change me from the inside out. I'm a sinner in need of saving. My good is not good enough. This is your moment right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have in only you. We have so many false idols. We, we haven't just kind of fallen short of your glory. We're, we're way short. If there's people in this space, online, downtown, that have thought they've had this religious thing figured out, but have now realized that they are separated from you because of their sin, that I pray in this moment they would say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'll give up everything if it means that my heart is right with you. I lay down all of my affections and all of my idol worship, all of my pride and all of my rebellion, and I pick up my cross right now and I follow you. Cover my sins with your blood. Raise my dead heart to life through your resurrection. If that's anyone in this space, everyone's eyes are closed, would you just look at me and say, that's exactly where I'm at, and I just never heard that before. Praise God. You can just keep looking at me for a second. What I'm asking for you is not to leave this place until we've talked. We will, we will find a spot to pray together. Do not just ignore this opportunity. The gospel has been opened. Open your eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're saving people. Sinners like me. 
We love you so much, and we pray these things in your name. And everybody said, amen. Uh, We're going to close our service out together. God has been so faithful to the ministry over the years, and we've been able to multiply and start new churches. And it, it really does come down to your obedience, to being generous. And so you can tithe on your way out. We don't have buckets to pass. You can tithe online. Uh, but we're going to take offering at the end. Right now, we're just going to keep showing you stories of families in this church who have been changed by Jesus. And then we're going to close together in our final song. My name is Trenton Amon. I'm Rachel Amon. This is Annabelle. And then we have another I primarily got started at New Life through music. Um, it's part of God's way of calling me in anywhere I can be used. Yeah, so we were kind of church hopping for a while and ended up coming back to New Life and we've been going here pretty much a little over four years. And everybody was really welcoming and it was always nice to come back. There's lots of things for young families too and for kids. And that's really nice because when you're an adult and have kids, it's hard to make friends. Since I started playing here more and more, I've been finding myself here more and more and grown confidence with those skills. It's a great character building. God's just been really working on my character, really. Kind of. Yeah, patience is a big one. (laughs) To me, uh, church is, you know, a lot of people think of it as a building, really. And uh, when you look deeper into it, it is literally the body of believers. We are New Life, and we are the church. church.